Chapter 31 of Memories and Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice. Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 31 Breaking the Hindenburg Line. Lloyd George. My Second Excursion. The Father's German Point. Sir Joseph Cook, Night Before the Day of Judgment, The Final Battle, On a Tank, Horrible Sight, Speech to Australians, The Magic Carpet. I find in my diary that the Prime Minister, Mr Lloyd George, invited me to breakfast in April 1917. Some third person was, I understand, to have been present, but he did not arrive, so that I found myself alone in the classic dining room of Number 10 Downing Street, while my host was finishing his toilette. Presently he appeared, clad in a grey suit, smart and smiling, with no sign at all that he bore the weight of the great European war upon his shoulders. Nothing could have been more affable or democratic, for there was no servant present, and he poured out the tea, while I from a side-table brought the bacon and eggs for both. He had certainly the Celtic power of making one absolutely at one's ease, for there was no trace at all of pomp or ceremony. Just a pleasant, smiling, grey-haired, but very virile gentleman, with twinkling eyes and a roguish smile. No doubt there are other aspects, but that is how he presented himself that morning. He began by talking about the great loss which the country had sustained in Lord Kitchener's death, speaking of him in a very kindly and human way. At the same time he was of opinion that long tropical service, and the habit of always talking down to subordinates, had had some effect upon his mind and character. He was a strange mixture of rather morose inactivity and sudden flashes of prevision which amounted to genius. He was the only man who had clearly foreseen the length of the war, and but for Turkey, Bulgaria and other complications, he probably overstated it at three years. There were times when he became so dictatorial as to be almost unbearable, and he had to be reminded at a cabinet council by Lloyd George himself that he was in the presence of twenty men who were his peers, and that he could not refuse them information or act above their heads. I confess that it struck me as very natural that a big man with vital knowledge in his brain should hesitate in a world crisis to confide it to twenty men, and probably twenty wives, each of whom was a possible leak. In spite of his genius, Kitchener was not accessible to new ideas. He could not see clearly why such enormous munitions were necessary. He opposed tanks. He was against the Irish and Welsh separate divisions. He refused the special flags which the ladies had worked for these divisions. He was as remote from sentiment as a steam-hammer. And yet he was dealing with humans who can be influenced by sentiment. He obstructed in many things, particularly in the Dardanelles. On the other hand, his steps in organising the new armies were splendid, though he had attempted, vainly, to do away with the territorials, another example of his blindness to the practical force of sentiment. Miss Asquith had said of him, If he is not a great man, he is a great poster, and certainly no one else could have moved the nation to such a degree, though the long series of provocations from the Germans had made us very receptive and combative. Lloyd George was justly proud of the splendid work of the Welsh division at the front. 
he had been to mamet's wood the taking of which had been such a bloody and also such a glorious business he listened with interest to an account which i was able to give him of some incidents in that fight and said that it was a beautiful story he had arranged for a welsh painter to do the scene of the battle he was interested to hear how i had worked upon my history and remarked that it was probably better done from direct human documents than from filed papers he asked me whether i had met many of the divisional generals and on my saying that i had he asked me if any had struck me as outstanding among their fellows i said i thought they were a fine level lot but that in soldiering it was impossible to say by mere talk or appearance who was the big man at a pinch he agreed he seemed to have a particular feeling towards general tom bridges of the nineteenth division and shortly afterwards i noticed that he was chosen for the american mission i talked to him about my views as to the use of armour and found him very keen upon it he is an excellent listener and seems honestly interested in what you say he said he had no doubt that in the problem of armour lay the future of warfare but how to carry it was the crux he said that the soldiers always obstructed the idea which was my experience also with a few notable exceptions i mentioned general watts of the seventh division as being interested in armour and he agreed and seemed to know all about watts who though a dugout was one of the finds of the war he was much excited about the revolution in russia news of which had only just come through the guards had turned and that meant that all had turned the tsar was good but weak the general character and probable fate of the tsarina were not unlike those of marie antoinette in fact the whole course of events was very analogous to the french revolution then it will last some years and end in a napoleon said i he agreed the revolt he said was in no sense pro-german the whole affair had been byzantine and reminded one of the old histories as i left he came back to armour and said that he was about to see someone on that very subject when i was in the hall it struck me that a few definite facts which i had in my head would be useful in such an interview so to the surprise of the butler i sat down on the hall chair and wrote out on a scrap of paper a few headings which i asked him to give the prime minister i don't know if they were of any use i came away reassured and feeling that a vigorous virile hand was at the helm i had not expected to see any more actual operations of the war but early in september nineteen eighteen i had an intimation from the australian government that i might visit their section of the line little did i think that this would lead to my seeing the crowning battle of the war it was on september twenty sixth that we actually started the party consisting of sir joseph cook naval minister of the australian commonwealth commander latham his aide-de-camp who in civil life is a rising barrister of melbourne and mr berry soon to be sir william berry proprietor of the sunday times we crossed in a gale of wind with the destroyer sheeted in foam on either side of the leave-boat each of us being obliged to wear life-belts several american newspaper men were on board one of them an old friend bock of the ladies home journal it was too late to continue our journey when we got across so we stayed at an inn that night and were off to the australian line at an early hour in the morning our way lying through abbeville and amiens the latter place was nearly deserted and very badly knocked about far more so than i had expected the enemy had as we knew been within seven miles of amiens it was the australian line which held the town safe and the allied cause from desperate peril if not ruin 
It did not surprise us, therefore, that we soon came upon signs of fighting. A little grove was shown us as the absolute farthest ripple of the advanced German wave. A little further on was the sheltered town of Villers-Bretonneux, with piles of empty cartridge cases at every corner to show where snipers or machine guns had lurked. A little further on a truly monstrous gun, the largest I have ever seen, lay near the road, broken into three pieces. It was bigger to my eyes than the largest on our battleships, and had been brought up and mounted by the Germans, just before the tide had turned, which was on July 5th. In their retreat they had been compelled to blow it up. A party of British guardsmen were standing round it, examining it, and I exchanged a few words with them. Then we ran on, through ground which was intensely interesting to me, as it was the scene of Goff's retreat, and I had just been carefully studying it at home. There was the Somme on our left, a very placid, slow-moving stream, and across it the higher ground, where our 111th Corps had been held up on the historical August 8th, the day which made Ludendorff realise, as he himself states, that the war was lost. On the plain, over which we were moving, the Australian and Canadian divisions had swept, with the tanks holding the British line as Bodicea's chariots did of old. Though I had not been over the ground before, I had visualised it so clearly, in making notes about the battle, that I could name every hamlet and locate every shattered church tower. Presently a hill rose on the left, which I knew to be Mount St. Quentin, the taking of which by the Australians was one of the feats of the war. It had been defended by picked troops, including some of the Prussian guards, but they were mostly taken or killed though a flanking attack by the British Yeomanry Division had something to do with the result. The old walled town of Peron, sacred forever to Sir Walter, Quentin Durwood, and the archers of the Scots Guards, lay before us, almost if not quite surrounded by the river, the canal, and broad moats. It seemed an impossible place to take, which is of course the greatest possible trap in modern warfare, since something occurring fifty miles away may place troops behind you and cut you off. Here our long drive finished, and we were handed over to the care of Colonel Bennett, commanding the camp, a tall, bluff warrior who, if he had doffed his khaki and got into a velvet tunic, would have been the exact image of the veteran warrior in Scott's novel. He was indeed a veteran, having fought, if I remember right, not only in South Africa, but even in the Australian Suakim contingent. A little wooden hut was put at our disposal, and there we slept, Sir Joseph Cook and I, with a small partition between us. I was bitterly cold, and so I can tell was he, for I could hear him tossing about, just as I did for warmth. We had neither of us made the discovery that you may pile all the clothes you like on the top of you, but so long as there is only one layer of canvas beneath you, you are likely to be cold. We don't usually realise that the mattress is also part of the bedclothes, we both got little sleep that night. Next morning, September 28th, we were off betimes, for we had much to see, the old town for one thing, which I vowed I would visit again in time of peace. We descended Mount St. Quentin, and saw ample evidence of the grim struggle that had occurred there. There were many rude graves, some of them with strange inscriptions. One of them, I was told, read, Here lies a German who met two diggers, 
The Australian Tommy was of course universally known as a digger. They make a rough, valiant, sporting but rude-handed crew. They went through the prisoners for loot, and even the officers were ransacked. Colonel Bennett told me that a colonel of the Germans was impudent when he came into his presence, so Bennett said, Mend your manners or I will hand you over to the diggers. They were waiting outside the tent for just such a chance. One German had an iron cross, which was snatched from him by an Australian. The German shaped up to the man in excellent form and knocked him down. The other Australians were delighted, gave him back his cross and made him quite a hero. I expect the looter had been an unpopular man. The young Australian officers were all promoted from the ranks and many of them had their own ideas about English grammar. Bennett told me that he tried to get the reports better written. One subaltern had reported, As I came round the traverse, I met a Bosch and we both reached for our guns, but he lost his block and I got him. Bennett returned this for emendation. It came back, As I came round the traverse, I met a German and we both drew our automatic pistols, but he lost his presence of mind and I shot him. I think I like the first style best. I lunched that day at the headquarters of Sir John Monash, an excellent soldier who had done really splendid work, especially since the advance began. Indeed, it was his own action on July the 5th which turned the tide of retreat. He showed that the long line of fighting Jews, which began with Joshua, still carries on. One of the Australian divisional generals, Rosenthal, was also a Jew, and the headquarters staff was full of eagle-nosed, black-haired warriors. It spoke well for them, and well also for the perfect equality of the Australian system, which would have the best man at the top, be he who he might. My brother was acting as Assistant Adjutant General to General Butler, with the 111th British Corps on the left of the Australians, and they had kindly wired for him, so that I had the joy of having him next me at lunch, and he invited me to join the headquarters mess of his corps for dinner. It was a wonderful experience, that dinner. The great advance was to be next morning when it was hoped that the Hindenburg Line, which was practically the frontier of Germany, would be carried. There were only six who dined in that little farmhouse mess room. Butler himself, with hard composed face, his head of sappers, head of gunners, my brother, the first and second staff officers, a little group of harassed and weary men. Yet there was no word of the huge drama upon the edge of which we were standing. Every now and then a telephone tinkled in the next room. A staff officer rose. There were a few short words, a nod, and the incident was closed. It was a wonderful example of quiet self-control. I said to my brother, when we were alone, Don't you think I am out of the picture at such a moment talking about such frivolous things? For God's sake, keep on at it, he said. It is just what they need. Give their brains something new. So I tried to do so, and we had a memorable evening. I shall never forget the drive back of ten miles in a pitch-dark night, with not a gleam anywhere, save that far aloft, two little gold points glimmered now and again, like the far-off headlights of a motor, transferred suddenly to the heavens. These were British aeroplanes, so lit to distinguish them from the German marauders. The whole eastern horizon was yellow-red with gunfire, and the distant roar of the artillery preparation was like the Atlantic surge upon a rock-bound coast. Along the road no lights were permitted, and several times out of the black a still blacker gloom framed itself into some motor lorry, with which only our cries saved a collision. 
It was wonderful and awesome, the eve of the day of judgment when Germany's last solid defence was to be smashed, and she was to be left open to that vengeance which she had so long provoked. We were awakened early, part of our party getting away to some point which they imagined would be more adventurous than that to which we seniors should be invited, though in the sequel it hardly proved so. They saw much, however, and one of them described to me how one of the first and saddest sights was that of eighteen splendid young Americans lying dead and lonely by the roadside, caught in some unlucky shell-burst. Mr. Cook, Commander Latham, and I had been placed under the charge of Captain Plunkett, a twice-wounded Australian officer who helped us much during the varied adventures of our exciting day. The general programme of attack was already in our minds. Two American divisions, the 27th and 30th, one from New York, the other from the South, were to rush the front line. The Australian divisions were then to pass over or through them and carry the battlefront forward. Already, as we arrived on the battlefield, the glad news came back that the Americans had done their part and that the Australians had just been unleashed. Also that the Germans were standing to it like men. As our car threaded the crowded street between the ruins of Templer, we met the wounded coming back, covered cars with nothing visible save protruding boots and a constant stream of pedestrians, some limping, some with bandaged arms and faces, some supported by Red Cross men, a few in pain, most of them smiling grimly, behind their cigarettes. Amid them came the first clump of prisoners, fifty or more, pitiable enough, and yet I could not pity them, the weary, shuffling, hangdog creatures, with no touch of nobility in their features or their bearing. The village was full of Americans and Australians, extraordinarily like each other in type. One could well have lingered, for it was all of great interest, but there were even greater interests ahead, so we turned up a hill, left our car, which had reached its limit, and proceeded on foot. The road took us through a farm, where a British anti-aircraft battery stood ready for action. Then we found open plain, and went forward amid old trenches and rusty wire, in the direction of the battle. We had now passed the heavy gun positions and were among the field guns, so that the noise was deafening. A British howitzer battery was hard at work, and we stopped to chat with the Major. His crews had been at it for six hours, but were in great good humour, and chuckled mightily when the blast of one of their guns nearly drove in our eardrums, we having got rather too far forward. The effect was that of a ringing box on the exposed ear with which valediction we left our grinning British gunners, and pushed on to the east, under a screaming canopy of our own shells. The wild empty waste of moor was broken by a single shallow quarry or gravel pit, in which we could see some movement. In it we found an advanced dressing station, with about a hundred American and Australian gunners and orderlies. There were dugouts in the sides of this flat excavation, and it had been an American battalion headquarters up to a few hours before. We were now about 1,000 yards from the Hindenburg line, and I learned with emotion that this spot was the Egg Redoubt, one of those advanced outposts of General Goff's army, which suffered so tragic and glorious a fate in that great military epic of March 21st, one of the grandest in the whole war, the fact that we were now actually standing in the egg redoubt showed me, as nothing else could have done, how completely the ground had been recovered and how the day of retribution was at hand.
We were standing near the eastward lip of the excavation and looking over it when it was first brought to our attention that it took two to make a battle. Up to now we had seen only one. Now two shells burst in quick succession, forty yards in front of us, and a spray of earth went into the air. Whiz-bangs, remarked our soldier guide casually. Personally, I felt less keenly interested in their name than in the fact that they were there at all. We thought we had done pretty well to get within a thousand yards of the famous line, but now came a crowning bit of good fortune, for an Australian gunner captain, a mere lad, but a soldier from his hawk's eyes to his active feet, volunteered to rush us forward to some coin of vantage known to himself. So it was eastward ho once more, still over a dull barren plain, sloping gently upwards, with little sign of life. Here and there was the quick fluff of a bursting shell, but at a comfortable distance. Suddenly, ahead of us, a definite object broke the skyline. It was a tank, upon which the crew were working with spanners and levers, for its comrades were now far ahead and it would fain follow. This, it seems, was the grandstand which our young gunner had selected. On to the top of it we clambered, and there, at our very feet, and less than five hundred yards away, was the rift which had been torn a few hours before in the Hindenburg line. On the dun slope beyond it, under our very eyes, was even now being fought a part of that great fight where at least the children of light were beating down into the earth the forces of darkness. It was there, we could see it, and yet how little there was to see. The ridge was passed and the ground sloped down, as dark and heathy as Hindhead. In front of us lay a village. It was Bellicourt. The Hindenburg position ran through it. It lay quiet enough, and with the unaided eye one could see rusty red folds of wire in front of it. But the wire had availed nothing, nor had the trench that lurked behind it, for beyond it, beside the village of Noroi, there was a long white line, clouds of pale steam-like vapour, spouting up against a dark, rain-sodden sky. The Bosch smoke barrage, said our guide. They are going to counter-attack. Only this, the long white swirling cloud upon the dark plain, told of the strife in front of us. With my glasses I saw what looked like tanks, but whether wrecked or in action I could not say. There was the battle, the greatest of battles, but nowhere could I see a moving figure. It is true that all the noises of the pit seemed to rise from that lonely landscape, but noise was always with us, go where we would. The Australians were ahead where that line of smoke marked their progress. In the sloping fields which at that point emerged out of the moor, the victorious Americans who had done their part were crouching. It was an assured victory upon which we gazed, achieved so rapidly that we were ourselves standing far forward in ground which had been won that day. The wounded had been brought in, and I saw no corpses. On the left the fight was very severe, and the Germans, who had been hidden in their huge dugouts, were doing their usual trick of emerging and cutting off the attack. So much we gathered afterwards, but for the moment it was the panorama before us which was engrossing all our thoughts. Suddenly the German guns woke up. I can but pray that it was not our group which drew their fire upon the half-mended tank. Shell after shell fell in its direction, all of them short, but creeping forward with each salvo. It was time for us to go. If any man says that without a call of duty he likes being under aimed shell-fire, he is not a man whose word I would trust. Some of the shells burst with a rusty red outflame, and we were told that they were gas-shells. 
I may say that before we were admitted onto the battlefield at all, we were ushered one by one into a room where some devil's pipkin was bubbling in the corner, and were taught to use our gas masks by the simple expedient of telling us that if we failed to acquire the art then and there, a very painful alternative was awaiting us. We made our way back with no indecent haste, but certainly without loitering, across the plain, the shells always getting rather nearer, until we came to the excavation. Here we had a welcome rest, for our good gunner took us into his cubbyhole of a dugout, which would at least stop shrapnel, and we shared his tea and dried beef, a true Australian soldier's meal. The German fire was now rather heavy, and our expert host explained that this meant that he had recovered from the shock of the attack, had reorganised his guns, and was generally his merry self once more. From where we sat, we could see heavy shells bursting far to our rear, and there was an atmosphere of explosion all around us, which might have seemed alarming had it not been for the general chatty afternoon tea appearance of all these veteran soldiers with whom it was our privilege to find ourselves. A group of sulky-looking German prisoners sat in a corner, while a lank and freckled Australian soldier, with his knee sticking out of a rent in his trousers, was walking about with four watches dangling from his hand, endeavouring vainly to sell them. Far be it from me to assert that he did not bring the watches from Sydney, and choose this moment for doing a deal in them, but they were heavy old Teutonic timepieces, and the prisoners seemed to take a rather personal interest in them. As we started on our homeward track, we came first upon the British battery, which seemed to be limbering up with some idea of advancing, and so lost its chance of administering a box on our other ear. Farther still we met our friends of the air-guns, and stopped again to exchange a few impressions. They had nothing to fire at, and seemed bored to tears, for the red, white and blue machines were in full command of the sky. Soon we found our motor, waiting in the lee of a ruined house, and began to thread our way back through the wonderfully picturesque streams of men, American, Australian, British and German, who were strung along the road. And then occurred a very horrible incident. One knew, of course, that one could not wander about a battlefield, and not find oneself sooner or later involved in some tragedy. But we were now out of range of any but heavy guns, and their shots were spasmodic. We had halted the car for an instant, to gather up two German helmets, which Commander Latham had seen on the roadside, when there was a very heavy burst close ahead round a curve in the village street. A geyser of red brick dust flew up into the air. An instant later, our car rounded the corner. None of us will forget what we saw. There was a tangle of mutilated horses, their necks rising and sinking. Beside them a man with his hand blown off was staggering away, the blood gushing from his upturned sleeve. He was moving round and holding the arm, raised and hanging, as a dog holds an injured foot. Beside the horses lay a shattered man, drenched crimson from head to foot, with two great glazed eyes looking upwards through a mask of blood. Two comrades were at hand to help, and we could only go upon our way with the ghastly picture, stamped forever upon our memory. The image of that dead driver might well haunt one in one's dreams. Once through Templer and on the main road for Peron, Things became less exciting, and we drew up to see a column of nine hundred prisoners pass us. Each side of the causeway was lined by Australians, with their keen, clear-cut falcon faces, and between lurched these heavy-jawed, beetle-browed, uncouth louts, new-caught and staring round with bewildered eyes at their debonair captors. 
I saw none of that relief at getting out of it which I have read of, nor did I see any signs of fear, but the prevailing impression was an ox-like stolidity and dullness. It was a herd of beasts, not a procession of men. It was indeed farcical to think that these uniformed bumpkins represented the great military nation, while the gallant figures who lined the road belonging to the race which they had despised as being unwarlike. Time and fate between them have a pretty sense of humour. One of them caught my eye as he passed and roared out in guttural English, "'The old German is out!' They were the only words I heard them speak. French cavalry troopers, stern, dignified and martial, rode at either end of the bedraggled procession. They were great soldiers, these Australians. I think they would admit it themselves, but a spectator is bound to confirm it. There was a reckless daredevilry combined with a spice of cunning, which gave them a place of their own in the imperial ranks. They had a great advantage, too, in having a permanent organisation, the same five divisions always in the same corps, under the same chief. It doubled their military value, and the same applied equally, of course, to the Canadians. Nonetheless, they should not undervalue their British comrades, or lose their sense of proportion. I had a chance of addressing some twelve hundred of them on our return that evening, and while telling them all that I thought of their splendid deeds, I ventured to remind them that seventy-two percent of the men engaged, and seventy-six percent of the casualties, were Englishmen of England. I think now that in these after-war days the whole world needs to be reminded of this fact, as well as the Australians did. There has been, it seems to me, a systematic depreciation of what the glorious English, apart from the British, soldiers did. England is too big to be provincial, and smaller minds sometimes take advantage of it. At the time, some of the Australian papers slanged me for having given this speech to their soldiers, but I felt that it needed saying, and several of their officers thanked me warmly, saying that as they never saw anything save their own front, they were all of them losing their sense of proportion. I shall not easily forget that speech, I standing on a mound in the rain, the Australian soldiers with cloaks swathed round them like brigands, and half a dozen aeroplanes returning from the battle, circling overhead, evidently curious as to what was going on. It seems to me now like some extraordinary dream. Such was my scamper to the Australian front. It was as if some huge hand had lifted me from my study table, placed me where I could see what I was writing about, and then within four days laid me down once more before the familiar table, with one more wonderful experience added to my record. And then at last came the blessed day of armistice. I was in a state London hotel at eleven o'clock in the morning, most prim of all the hours of the day, when a lady, well-dressed and conventional, came through the turning doors, waltzed slowly round the hall with a flag in either hand, and departed without saying a word. It was the first sign that things were happening. I rushed out into the streets, and of course the news was everywhere at once. I walked down to Buckingham Palace and saw the crowds assembling there, singing and cheering. A slim young girl had got elevated onto some high vehicle, and was leading and conducting the singing as if she was some angel in tweeds, just dropped from a cloud. In the dense crowd I saw an open motor stop with four middle-aged men, one of them a hard-faced civilian, the others officers. I saw this civilian hack at the neck of a whisky bottle and drink it raw. I wished the crowd had lynched him. It was the moment for prayer, and this beast was a blot on the landscape. 
On the whole, the people were good and orderly. Later, more exuberant elements got loose. They say that it was when the Australian wounded met the war office flappers that the foundations of solid old London got loosened. But we have little to be ashamed of, and if ever folk rejoiced, we surely had the right to do so. We did not see the new troubles ahead of us, but at least these old ones were behind, and we had gained an immense reassurance. Britain had not weakened. She was still the Britain of old. End of chapter 31